We've been tragically indoctrinated to believe that we actually are our achievements. I'm here to be a billionaire. I'm here to become this. I'm here to be the most followed person on TikTok. I'm here to be whatever it may be. And when we get confused in that way, it breeds restlessness. You're here to get free of the stuff that binds you on the inside. How do you define dharma? So dharma is everything ranging from the core truth of who you are, like the dharma of fire is to burn, the dharma of water is to wet, the dharma of Arjun, right? His dharma was to fight, but, but he also had a dharma as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a king. So our dharma in our life, there's not just one. We all have so many different dharmas, both in different stages of our life. You were sexually abused and you had a problem with eating disorder and so on and so forth. What does it feel when you are on the other side of like you said, freeing yourself from this. Does that feel nothing emotionally? I feel when I revisit those moments, like if in my mind I were to think back on the abuse or to think back through the years when I was struggling with bulimia, it's not that I feel nothing, it's that I feel... Welcome to another episode of the Inspiring Talk podcast. Today, I'm blessed and honored to have with me Sadvizi. Sadvizi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you. It's such an honor and pleasure to have you on the podcast. And uh, for the last two days, uh, spending time here at the ashram, and I think um, I've always had this amazing sense of peace and calm. And also I see the same in the face of the people. And I don't know if it's, uh, you know, in everybody here in Rishikesh, I feel that light. Yeah. And I think it's the many, many years of uh, tapasya and the energy yes. that's here, which is which is beautiful. I was sitting at you know the satsang last evening, and um, one of the things that you sort of you know shared during that, which I thought was really really interesting, was um, a lot of us, particularly the youngster, we have this restless mind where. I need to constantly keep on doing things. I need to constantly run. I need to keep on constantly, you know, do things. Yes. So how do how does one find the balance of saying that, hey, you know what? I personally feel there's a certain sense of restless, restlessness is also required for you to propel further and at the same time not get carried away by everything and anything that is new and that catches your attention. Great. So, first of all, I would say that there's a difference between energy, excitement, vitality, drive, and restlessness. Mm. Restlessness takes us off center. Destabilizes us. It takes us off of our anchoring. Restlessness is that voice that says the present moment is not correct. Mm. The present moment is not right. Something, something is not right. Whether it's because the next moment is going to be a problem for me, so I'm stressed about the future. Whether I'm rethinking the past, oh my God, I made a fool of myself. Whether it's actually in this moment. 
But restlessness is that, that sense that something is not right and that in the future it's also not going to be right. In order to succeed in the world, to move forward, we need an awareness of a few things. First of all, we need an awareness of our dharma. We need an awareness that says, this is what I'm put on earth to do. That in and of itself catalyzes us and propels us forward to fulfill that dharma. But we also need an awareness that we are an instrument in the hands of the divine. Hmm. And that there is a flow of the universe. And this isn't separate from dharma, but it's just another facet Hmm. of thinking about dharma. We're an instrument through which the divine flows. There's constant movement. Whether we speak about shushti, the creation, whether we speak about prakriti, nature, everything other than supreme reality, soul, God, everything else is in constant motion. I won't go into it too much philosophically, but when we speak about purush and prakriti, prakriti is that which is in constant motion. It's us, it's our physical bodies, it's our karmic journey, it's the drama that we're going through, it's the dharma we're fulfilling, it's our roles, it's our relationships, it's our thoughts. Constant state of motion and change. Hmm. It's the wave on the ocean. And so allowing that flow to flow through us, the goal is not to stop it. Ganga flows before us. It's beautiful. You would never say, oh, I should stop Ganga Mm. so that Ganga can be one with the unchanging reality. No, the nature of Ganga, the actual physical embodiment of the divine mother goddess, the embodiment is her form as a river. She's in motion. She should flow. We did a lot of work to make sure that she's flowing, that her flow is avidal and nirmal. Hmm. Constant free flowing and also clean. In the same way, in our lives, we need to allow a constant flow of the river of life through us. And I mention this right here because you don't need restlessness to be the catalyst to propel you further. Mm. You need an awareness that we are what we call namitra, namitra matam. Mm-hmm. That, that instrument, that tool, that bhav, when we say namitra matram bhav, that bhav of being just an instrument in the hands of the divine. Mm. So that's what propels us is I am here as an instrument. I am here to be a tool of the flow of the divine on earth. And so every day when I wake up, it's not restlessness that propels us out of bed. It's a sense of, wow, Hmm. how is the divine going to flow through me today? How can I be an instrument, a channel, a vehicle, a vessel? That's one part. The other part, going back to Dharma, is dharma is not only outside, so it's not just a matter of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. 
it's a shift in my inner experience. So my dharma. So how do you define dharma? That yeah. So my dharma is not just what I'm doing, but it's actually all of how I am understanding and transforming my awareness. How do you define dharma? Well, that that's a podcast in and of itself, or a series of them. But for now, I would just say simplistically. Yeah. It's a tapestry woven of threads of duty, righteousness, truth, protection, Mm -hmm. laws of nature, laws of the universe. So Dharma is everything ranging from the core truth of who you are, like the dharma of fire is to burn. The dharma of water is to wet. The dharma of Ganga is to flow and to bring to moksha. Yeah. The dharma of Arjun, right? We have the Bhagavad Gita, the premier treatise on dharma. His dharma was to fight, but, but he also had a dharma as a husband. He had a dharma as a father. He had a dharma as a son. He had a dharma as a king. So in these 700 verses of the Bhagavad Gita, when Bhagwan Krishna was trying to get him to fight, he was focusing most on his dharma as a warrior, as the one to restore the dharma. But if the Bhagavad Gita had taken place in the living room of the palace once they had, you know, won everything and the war was over and they were back, He'd have a different dharma. If the conversation took place as they were walking up through the Himalayas at the end, the end of their lives, it would have been a completely different conversation around dharma. So our dharma in our life, there's not just one. We all have so many different dharmas, both in different stages of our life. Our dharma as a student is different than our dharma as a householder, different than our dharma as a sannyas, different from our dharma as a child to our parents or a parent to our children. But then there's also universal dharma, which is just things like be honest, have integrity, be generous, All of these principles and tenets of what you would consider a dharmic life, Mm -hmm. they're universal. They apply to everyone. It doesn't matter what phase of life you're in. It doesn't matter any of your relationships. We all should be honest. Mm -hmm. We all should have compassion. We all should be generous. We all should be truthful. We all, I mean, that's universal dharma. Then lastly, we have in addition to all of those other aspects of dharma, we also have our dharma to ourselves, Mm. which primarily at the core is to wake up into the truth of who we are. Like that's actually why we took birth. Mm. No one took birth to become the CEO of a company or the president of a company or to make a certain amount of money or to achieve a certain goal. We took birth to wake up, to realize that 
divinity of the truth of who we are, that we are not separate from the supreme reality. That's what yoga is. When we speak about yoga, well, that merging of the jiva atma and the paramatma, that journey from being an individual self to that state of samadhi, Mm. that's the dharma of waking up. So that's, again, universal dharma, but on an internal deep level rather than a how we move through the world level. But then I also have an internal dharma to my particular and unique karmic package and journey. Each of us has our own unique karmic journey that we're on, karmic package that we come on this earth with. And we have to really honor it, give voice to it, live it. So when I speak about dharma, that's that's what I mean. But let's let's go back. I don't want to I don't want to miss the thread of the original question about the the restlessness of the mind. So that restlessness is antithetical to being anchored in, grounded in truth. Because the restlessness says present moment is not right and future moment will not be right. Mm. Unless I run the show. And even in the midst of the treatise on Dharma, Bhagwan Krishna makes it very clear to Arjun, my friend, you're not actually doing anything. Mm. I'm the doer. You're not actually the doer anyway. We're going to play this game. We're going to play this drama. You will play that role. But do not actually start to think that that's who you are. So overcoming restlessness and overcoming the constant movement of the mind is actually a very important goal, and especially for youth as you began. So I'll I'll come back down from like the really depth philosophy and we'll just get back into overcoming that of the mind. But it was a beautiful... Hmm diversion into dharma. Um, We've been tragically indoctrinated to believe that we actually are our achievements, Mm. that we are our accomplishments, that we are our roles, whether I've become the CEO or the president or a successful this or that. We believe that that is our purpose. I'm here to be a billionaire. I'm here to become this. I'm here to be the most followed person on TikTok. I'm here to be whatever it may be. And when we get confused in that way, it breeds restlessness. Because then we are constantly having to live every moment all about what I'm doing, what I'm doing, what I'm doing, what I'm doing. And we forget to ask, who am I? Who am I? And what am I here for? So for your generation and for everyone's generation in any case, I would say it's really important to realize and recognize 
that you're not here about some kind of an achievement. You're not here about some kind of specific attainment, specific Hmm. piece of work. You're here for your inner work. You're here to get free of the stuff that binds you on the inside. And so if you feel restless, I would actually say what might be counterintuitive, which is slow down. Mm -hmm. It means you're not anchored and grounded. What is it that's propelling you? And what propels most of us is a sense that we're not enough. Doesn't matter how much I achieve, it's not enough. Until and unless I'm number one, until and unless I'm first, until and unless I've hit a million views, until and unless I've hit a million dollars, whatever it is my benchmark is, Mm. I'm not satisfied. Mm. And the minute I get there, then there's another benchmark. Mm -hmm. Then I'm still not satisfied. That drive of the mind from man mange more, 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 right, that's never satisfied, is actually our downfall. And so when you notice that happening, rather than speed up, stop and say to yourself, where have I gotten lost? What am I running toward? What am I running from? What feeling of inadequacy, not fullness, insecurity, fear, am I running from? That I think that somehow if I make enough money, if I scale the corporate ladder high enough, then I will be worthy of occupying my place on planet Earth. Hmm. If that restlessness is there, I would say completely stop temporarily and meditate until there is grounding and anchoring in, I am enough. I am full, I am whole, I am complete in the very nature of who I am. And from that fullness and wholeness and completeness, but if I don't have that anchoring and grounding first, then it all becomes about me, me, me. What I'm doing, what I'm achieving, what I'm attaining, who's blocking my way, who I need to get rid of, who I can use to get ahead. Then everything becomes competition. And I'm never satisfied. You said that, you know, become the vehicle of divine's plan. Do you think that we get in our own way to block the plan that God have for you by not being in alignment with the divine so that like you said, how Krishna executed what he wanted through Arjuna. If, and and the basis of this is each of us, the God has a plan for us and we are getting in our own way. Absolutely. And if you were to say that, okay, these are the few things we can do maybe both ways in terms of, these are the few things that's actually blocking for the most of the people in terms of getting being that vehicle that the God has a plan for you. Great. So yeah, we absolutely are our own worst enemies. We absolutely get in our own way. Here's the thing about the universe. It's very patient. It's very patient. The universe 
And when I say the universe, I say the universe instead of God, because when we speak about God, and I won't go off on a very long digression into this, but when we speak about God, God means different things to different people. When some of us say God, we think about the infinite supreme reality, Mm -hmm. Brahman. When some of us think about God, we think about Vishnu avatars. We think about Krishna. We think about Ram, who are very much here, Mm. engaged in action on earth. We pray to different aspects of that divine And that's going to inform how we think about God's plan for us, for example. So when I say the universe, I mean that that divine universe, that intelligent universe, that creative universe, that energy of divinity, but that also we speak of as grace. So without getting caught up in semantics, that's what I mean when I say the universe. I don't actually just mean the stars and the suns and this. I mean that whole intelligent energy, that whole capital P plan and the capital P planner, all of it. So the universe absolutely has a plan for us. But it's very patient. That plan is, that agenda is that we all should wake up. As I said before, that's why we were given birth. So the agenda is we all will wake up. We will become free of ignorance, free of illusion, free of that which keeps us separate, free of that which keeps us stuck. But the universe is patient. And so not this life, okay, next life. There's there's a, a beautiful teaching that says if you imagine a mountain that's a mile wide and a mile tall, and once every hundred years, a bird flies by that mountain with a silk scarf in its beak, and it runs that silk scarf along the side of that mountain once every hundred years, the amount of time it will take for that mountain to be eroded down is as long as we have been in this cycle of birth and rebirth. So it really gives you a much vaster idea of how long this has been going on. So the universe is patient. You want to get in your own way this life? Okay, next life. You want to get in your own way next life again? Okay, the life after that. Um, But we need to ask ourselves, What's the point? If I know what my goal is, if I know what the plan is, if I know that I've been put here as this beautiful, incredible, divine incarnation, which we all are, we all are, these incarnations of, these embodiments of, manifestations of, reflections of the divine on earth, why waste our time? Why get stuck? Every scripture we have is some way to try to help us get unstuck. Mm. How to deal with the monkey mind, how to overcome your ego, how to live your dharma. Like it's all about, hey, wake up, get free, come on, leave this stuff. So 
Yes, we are our own worst enemies. That's part of the lila,、mm-hmm. that divine drama. It's part of the workings of our mind. But we're also given the tools to get free of that,、mm-hmm. which is introspection, meditation, surrender. When we come to the banks of Ganga, we let go. Ganga is that goddess of freedom, that goddess of moksha. But as I always remind everyone, it's not just moksha after you die. People bring ashes here so that their loved ones can attain moksha after they're dead, and that's beautiful, and it works, of course. But she doesn't only give moksha after death; she's the bringer of liberation. And so we become what we call jivan mukti,、mm-hmm. that freedom while living. So we offer to Ganga not just our ashes after we're dead, but we offer that which is keeping us stuck, that which is getting us in our own way, our own egos, our fears, our illusions, our anger, our grudges, our. Competitions, our jealousies, our false identifications—we offer all of that, and we pray for her to make us free. That's the work we have to do: is to recognize where am I getting in my own way. Some of it is really unconscious stuff. Some of it is more subconscious self-sabotage that we do on so many different levels. But Ganga teaches us just let it go, and if you're not on the banks of Ganga, don't worry. Offer it to any water body. Offer it into a fire. Offer it in your prayers, but don't feel like you're stuck with it. Yes, we have an ego. It doesn't mean that that has to run our show. Yes, we've all had challenges and obstacles and difficulties and even trauma, and they've left repercussions on us. That doesn't mean it has to define us. That doesn't mean that has to be the identity. Yes, we all have fears and we have desires, but that doesn't mean that that keeps us from living our dharma. Arjun had fears. The whole Bhagavad Gita is in response to Arjun's fear, to his doubt. So these teachings are teachings to help us get out of our own way. They're essentially God saying to us, "Come on, silly." Stop! I've given you these tools of awakening. Use them. Sadhviji, you came to India 27 years back, and then stayed here at the ashram.、Um, to what you were just saying, in a way that you were,、um, you know, sort of living a different purpose per se before this, and then you came here, and、uh, then you know you are impacting so many lives now. So, what internal shifts made you do this? So, when I first came, I didn't come due to any internal shift,、mm-hmm. other than just wanting a vacation.、Mm-hmm. I came with a backpack、mm-hmm. on what I thought was just going to be a three-month adventure. I had taken one semester off of my PhD program. Yeah, I was an avid traveler. Loved traveling and had been in a constant 
unbroken PhD program. And so I thought I need, need a break. So I came with a backpack just on this adventure trip. But I had an incredibly powerful experience of awakening, of self-realization, of God-realization, standing on the banks of Ganga. Unexpected, unanticipated, just by grace. I was 25. I had been an academic. I was a scientist. I was not a mystic. I was not a spiritual person. I was not a meditator. Mm. But once that happened, then there were so many shifts in how I thought and how I lived. I mean, everything shifted inside me. My heart shifted. My awareness shifted. My mind shifted. Everything shifted. Mm. The, the primary way that I've come to talk about these shifts actually is in what ended up becoming the title of my memoir, Hollywood to the Himalayas, because, yes, exactly, because it was not only the physical journey that my body took, quite literally from Hollywood to the Himalayas, but, because that's where I was, where I grew up, I spent all of my childhood in Hollywood, literally, But the mindset shift from what I call the Hollywood way of thinking to the Himalayan way of thinking, that was really the main shift. And the the Hollywood way of thinking says you are your body. Its size, its shape, its color, its race, its religion, its success, its roles, its relationships, its rung on the social ladder, on the career ladder, its followers on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or whatever it may be, that that's who you are. You are your bank balance. You are all of those things. And so we suffer. We suffer a constant feeling of I'm not enough, not beautiful enough, not successful enough, not intelligent enough, not happy enough, not popular enough. We compete constantly with each other. We bring suffering to others because we're constantly trying to move others out of the way where we feel not enough. So I need to push others out of the way or use them in some way. We objectify others. We objectify ourselves. And we're miserable. We suffer. The Himalayan way of thinking says you have a body but you're not the body. You are soul, you are spirit, you are consciousness, you are divinity. And that for me was the main shift. I came here thinking I was my body. I was what it looked like. The days I was happy with it, life was good. The days I was not happy with it, life was not good. Something needed to be done. That I was my degrees that I had a degree from Stanford University, so I was a very intelligent person, that I was this, I was that, but I had these challenges and these struggles and these obstacles and this trauma, so I was not worthy enough, not good enough, and I was constantly, 
self-identifying based on what I did, what I could do, what I knew, what I achieved, what happened to me, how other people looked at me, how they talked about me, how they thought about me. And so I suffered. And I come here and I have this extraordinary darshan of Mother Ganga. I find myself at the feet of an extraordinary master, an extraordinary being, an extraordinary guru who I didn't even know at the time was one of the most revered masters, not only in India, but in the world. Mm. And he told me, Pujaswamiji did, Pujaswami Chidananda Saraswatiji, our, the president of Paramarth Nikatan. He really showed me and taught me how I wasn't the body, I wasn't the story, I wasn't the roles, I wasn't the relationships, I wasn't Mm. any of that. I wasn't the history. I wasn't the neurosis. I wasn't any of that. But that who I was was divine. Mm. And that shift in my mind was this shift from suffering to an end of suffering. Mm. Beautiful. Um, you know, you have covered a ton in this book on the journey. And one thing that, uh, you know, really stood out to me, which you mentioned uh, a while ago, was give your suffering, give your pain, give your resentment, yes. whatever you are holding to nature. You know, in your case, you did that to, you know, Mother Ganga. Yes. So can you talk about that experience on you know what that experience was and how people can probably do that with other form of nature so as i was saying earlier we hold on we hold on to our anger to grudges to false identifications of who we think we are Mm. i am this i am that and they're equally damaging whether it's something positive or something negative Because they're both false. Mm. And they both box us in. So whether it's I am the smartest Mm. or I am the stupidest, I am the best or I am the worst, they're equally damaging. Because they're equally untrue and they keep us equally stuck and equally trapped. Mm. The I am the best feels better in the moment than I am the worst. But it's the lull of ignorance. Mm. You know, it's how good a chocolate ice cream cone feels in the moment without realizing the stomach ache it's going to give you later on. We hold on to our our pain. We hold on to our history. We hold on to all of these stories that we tell ourselves. We hold on to attachments and expectations of how the world should be, how other people should behave how they should think about us. And when that doesn't happen, we suffer. And so what Pooja Swamiji had me do was quite literally give my pain and anger to Ganga. And it's not just about giving it to nature. Ganga is really the mother goddess. As I said, she is the bringer of liberation. So there's a power here that is different from just the power of nature. Mm. 
because it's actually this mother goddess liberating Shakti. Mm -hmm. And he had me really offer it to her. Let it go. Give it back to the mother. Give her your anger. Give her your pain. And I did. It wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was going to work. In fact, I was pretty sure it wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. I had I'm a, sure that your PhD logic and science. Of course. Of course. I was just going to say I was mm -hmm. a you know PhD student in psychology. We don't give pain to the river. But I did. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that I became actually free from it. Mm -hmm. And since then, I've had the blessing of being able to guide other people through this process. And what I have seen is the incredible power that it has on so many. Mm -hmm. But again, as you bring up nature, it doesn't have to be only Mother Ganga because a lot of people can't get here. Mm -hmm. Sorry to interrupt, but That's you okay. say give, uh, give your pain to mm -hmm. the nature? Like, how do you, people so, might be you know, curious? So, yeah, so mm -hmm. what, it, what I mean is, really quite literally, it's you close your eyes and you literally feel, because we feel pain and anger in our body. It's not just in our mind. The reason it gives us ulcers and heart attacks mm -hmm. is because it literally exists in our body. And so the moment you close your eyes and you dive in, you feel it. You can actually locate that, the pain, the anger, the grudge, the memories. And you literally pull it up. Can you, can you tangibly feel that in your hands? And if not tangibly, don't worry. You can just envision that it's there. All of the memories, just pour them out of your mind, out of your heart, into your hands. In my case, I had water in my hands from the river. And so I was pouring from my mind, from my heart, from my gut, from all of these places that you hold that anger and pain into the water. You could do it with soil. You could pull some soil up from under the base of a beautiful tree and offer it into that soil and then offer the soil back to the base of the tree. Mm. We do it into fire, into our yagna ceremonies. You offer, you hold the samagri in your hand mm. and into that samagri you offer mm. the anger, the pain, the grudge, the story. And then, we do and the then you offer that swaha, exactly, mm. exactly. So it's a very visual, it's a very tactile, it's a very active experience of giving it. But the truth is, we don't actually have any other way. If we hold on to these things, they keep us stuck. And we cannot move on. And so we let go. Not because what happened was okay. Not because the other person was not in the wrong but because holding on keeps us from being free. Sadhviji, I have a follow-up question to that, right? Um, you had a very, you know, tough background in the sense that you were sexually abused um, and you had a problem with eating disorder and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, this is more from the perspective of what does it feel 
when you are on the other side of like you said freeing yourself from this right um maybe someone who is going through a let's say a breakup or maybe someone who is going through a tough financial situation in life or maybe some somebody just got cheated or and so on and so forth right things always happen and we hold a lot of that to us and when we do that that pain that anger you know and and that that suffering that we go through when you free yourself and when you revisit that event you know does that feel nothing emotionally i feel when i revisit those moments like if in my mind i were to think back mm-hmm. on the abuse or to think back through the years when i was struggling with bulimia mm-hmm. it's not that i feel nothing it's that i feel extraordinary compassion mm-hmm. for the young girl for the young woman who was struggling the young girl when i was abused the young woman when i was suffering from the bulimia i feel incredible compassion for her mm-hmm. but i don't feel like she is me and so i'm able to see her and to feel that love and to feel that compassion to feel a sense of righteous anger as in hey that's wrong that shouldn't have happened in the same way that we feel righteous anger when you read on the news that some young child was kidnapped or raped or harmed like that stuff should make us angry Spirituality does not mean oh you can just read all of that and you feel nothing. That's being dead. That's not being spiritual. That stuff does make us angry. But not angry in a way that handicaps our life or harms someone else. Or harms someone else. You read the news, you feel Ugh. if there's something you can do, you want to do it. If there's nothing you can do, you take a moment, you close your eyes, you pray. Mm. But it doesn't paralyze your life. You don't then when you put down the newspaper or turn off the computer, you don't then move through your world <coughs> feeling like you are that person. Mm. You understand that this happened to a being to whom it shouldn't have mm-hmm. as humans we have a righteous indignation at the fact that this happened that should not happen mm-hmm. but that righteous indignation does not paralyze our lives mm-hmm. and we do not identify as it so i can see that and i can feel a a righteous indignation that that should not have happened while at the same time i can feel great compassion for her while at the same time i can feel great compassion for the perpetrator mm. because i can see him not as a monster not as an evil being mm. but as a scared confused mm. off the track man who was just as haunted by what he had done as i was and so i'm able to to see that with the compassion i'm able to look back on myself as an adolescent mm. as a woman in my early 20s struggling with bulimia and to feel great compassion mm. 
for that being. But I don't feel, oh, that is me. I'm not carrying that identity in the world. When I think about that, it doesn't trigger me into then falling back into any of that. It doesn't bring back feelings that that paralyzed me, that hijacked my mind, my heart, my emotions, my identity, any of that. How easy or difficult or, you know, is it to really distance yourself and say that, you know, make peace with that and then also say that that's not me and, you know, not carry that identity? So it's important to realize it's not a distancing. I'm not cutting myself off from it. And that's really important because then you get into repression and suppression mm-hmm. and denial. And then you just become like a volcano ready to explode. Mm-hmm. It's actually about healing and letting go, mm-hmm. which is very different. Mm-hmm. It's about letting go of that identification. I mean, the truth is, if you said to me, show me the girl who was abused. Mm-hmm. Show me the young woman who was bulimic. I couldn't. There isn't one cell in my body today that was there in either of those times. Not one. She quite literally doesn't exist. So it's not a matter of distancing or repression. It's a matter of real acknowledgement that yes, that happened. No, that shouldn't have happened. But know that isn't the being who sits here. And so it's a real deep awareness and relinquishing of the attachment to it. So it's that. Was it easy or hard? Oh, it was definitely difficult. It's definitely not easy. But it's... It's letting go of the thing that keeps you stuck. And so as long as you really want to be unstuck, you let go. Doesn't mean it's easy. But it means you recognize either I hold on to this and it keeps me stuck forever. Or I learn to let it go so I can be free. Wow. And this is such a profound insight. Um, know for me to carry this is this is really amazing so um you have been you know um in this ashram for almost 27 years and um you know you have taken the vows of monkhood and you know um so let's just assume that you have to now go back to the real i'm not saying you know go back to the world and live like the rest of us, not as a monk now. What are the three things that would that you would take from these last 27 years into the real world? Just three. First of all, this is not the unreal world. Yeah, I, I, I realized that when I was using the word real, I was trying to find the we right need, word. We, yeah. we, need, we definitely mm. need a different definition of yeah. real. Mm. Uh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But... To me, a world in which we're focused on the truth of who we are rather than the accumulation of stuff mm. is certainly just as real, mm. if not a whole lot realer. Mm. But I know what you mean. You mean the 
external material world of samsara, shall we say. If I were to take three things from here, you know, it's, it's hard because really as a monk, the only aspect of quote unquote monkhood is I'm celibate. So I went from being a non-celibate person to being a celibate person. I went from being someone who wore shirts and t-shirts, shorts and t-shirts to being someone who wears saris. That's the only aspect of the monkness. The rest of it was an aspect of a transformation of self that would stay with me even if you sent me back into some city. So even if you said, okay, you no longer can be a monk, you are hereby required to abandon your celibacy. Well, even if you required me to abandon that, you couldn't undo the internal changes that had happened within me. And so I feel like I would actually carry all of it back. There isn't a way to tease apart the lessons that I've learned here from the being of a sannyasi. I mean, you know, I always say one of the most powerful lessons I've learned here is to ask not what for me, but to ask what through me. That I used to always think what for me, like what's in this for me, whereas I learned how much happier life is when you ask what through me. But that has nothing to do with sex. Even if you said, you must stop being celibate. Well, I wouldn't go back to asking what for me. The two things are not tied together. Even if you said you cannot wear saffron robes, you must wear cut-off jeans and t-shirts, I still wouldn't start asking what for me. And so I don't know that you can separate the lessons and the transformation of a spiritual life and simply lump it in with abstinence from sex and wearing of saffron robes. Because it's a, it's a transformation of a spiritual practice. And that's why we always say, you can live a spiritual life, a deeply rich spiritual life, even if you're not a monastic. There's no rule that says you must give up sex in order to be enlightened, awakened, in peace, any of these things. It is the dharma of a small group of us, percentage-wise, whose dharma really is like Arjun's dharma was to be a warrior. My dharma is to be a monastic, a monk. But even for those whose dharma is different, they can still have all of the rest of it. They may be in jeans and a t-shirt instead of saffron robes. They may be having sex rather than being abstinent. But I hope that they still learn to ask what through me instead of what for me. I hope that they still learn to bring all of the spiritual principles and tenets into their daily life, that they meditate and pray and do yagna and do arti. I mean, I would do all of those things whether I was celibate in orange robes or not. 
Because what I have seen is these are the things that bring deep meaning mm. in my life. Mm. So, yeah, I would, I would carry it all with me. Mm. The reason I asked that was for us, you know, who live in the material world mm. um, where we are chasing things, um, milestones and whatnot, right? Um, so, you know, what we could learn. So uh, what you know, three from, tips can I give you? Yeah. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah. So that's a fair question, different question, but a, yeah. a, a good question. So I think number one would be the ask not what for me, but ask what through me. I think me. that's a really powerful one. We know from science from all kinds of scientific psychological studies that giving, serving, altruism mm. actually brings much more happiness mm. than getting and obtaining. And this isn't just from a monastic spiritual standpoint. This is from psychological studies, from science. Number two, I would say remember who you are. When you forget who you are, you start to think that you are what you do. And therefore, what you do becomes of critical importance. And you become very attached to those fruits of your labor. Because if this is what I do, well, then it better work out. It better be number one. It better be the best. Everyone better love it. Because that's who I am. If what I do is who I am, then there's all that attachment, all that expectation. So I would say know who you are, which is not what you do. Shift your way of thinking from the Hollywood way to the Himalayan way. Take that inner journey of a mindset shift. And the third, I would say, is to recognize that Spirituality mm -hmm. is something that's critical to bring into your lives in any case. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take you farther from the world. It takes you into the truth of the world. Mm -hmm. And that spirituality and success in entrepreneurship, success in business, success professionally can coexist. Mm -hmm. Krishna was king of Dwarka, city made of gold. Right? There's nothing that says that gold and God cannot coexist. I love that. The dilemma is when we start to think that God is in the gold. So should success come? Fantastic. Should acclaim come? Fantastic. But don't think that all of what you want in life is going to come in your achievements and attainments and success. Recognize that the real success is internal. And again, this is borne out by science. This is not just what an orange robe clad monastic sitting in the Himalayas is telling you. Mm -hmm. This is what science is telling us these days. Mm -hmm. What is real happiness anchored in? What really brings happiness? not money, not external success, not a claim, deep inner connection. Mm -hmm. 
living a meaningful life, giving back, serving, being connected to the divine, to yourself, to others. So remember, A, that you're not what you do. Remember who you are, but also remember what's the purpose of your life and where is what you're looking for going to come from? Is it only in the gold? Of course not. Krishna was also there at Sudama's house, Hmm. right? It was just as blissful, just as blissful. It wasn't more blissful in Dwarka because there was gold. Sometimes where God is, there's gold. Sometimes where God is, there's leaves and thatch and mud and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But as long as the divine is always there, as long as that inner connection, that spiritual connection is always there, success will go up and down. Mm -hmm. Your bank account will go up and down. Mm -hmm. But then you won't go up and down with it. So Sadhguruji, you know, I was always curious when I used to look at, you know, people who are driven uh, by spreading the knowledge, by, you know, trying to share as much uh, as they can to, uh, you know, wider and more people. And I always wonder, hey, what is it that really drives them? Is there anything that they really want to achieve? Or what, what, what is it that really drives to consistently keep on doing the same thing, right? For instance, um, doing the arti every day, you know, for years, you know, or maybe doing the satsang every day for years without saying that it's boring or I've been, I've done enough and so on and so forth. But still, you know, you keep going. Great. Do you eat every day? You sleep every day? Would you ever say, oh, I forget it, I'm done eating. That is so boring. Like I've done this every day. Ugh, forget it, enough. You're going to keep eating because it nourishes your body. Without eating, you feel unnourished. Eventually, you'll start to get kind of lightheaded. You won't be able to think quite so well. You won't be really grounded, anchored. Your health will go. You sleep. It re-nourishes you. It recharges you, quite literally. It restores the body. Our spiritual practices restore us. Now, do enlightened masters need to do puja and meditation? No. They're there. They don't need to recharge. They're the ones who charge us. But for the rest of us, For those of us who are on the path, still awakening, unfolding, blossoming, we need this constant recharging, re-energizing ourselves. Now, I travel. I could be out for a couple of months in a row, don't have the chance to do the arti. By God's grace, I've over all of these years, developed an inner charge that's strong enough that it's not like I find myself, you know, going like this as the days go by that I'm not doing arti. But when I come back and I do it again, there is a profound sense of, ah, like the soul just soaks it up. Mm. 
in the same way that you may have trained yourself to be a very good faster and to be able to go for hours, if not days, without eating. But when you finally start to eat again, the body definitely has a sense of, ah, thank God. Mm. Many of us, when we're students, learn how to go for a really long time without sleeping. Maybe some chemical aids, maybe not, either way. But we do manage in final exams and whatnot to go a long time without sleeping. And we may be okay. Mm. We can run on adrenaline or caffeine or whatever for a while. But when we finally do sleep, the body and the brain go, ah. And that's, that's been my experience is, yes, in the beginning, I never wanted to miss one. In the beginning, it was like, oh, God, if I had to miss the arthi. But as the years have gone by, that charge is there enough inside that I don't find myself plummeting into spiritual despair. But I do absolutely, when I come back and experience it again, have that sense of soul, spirit, just going, ah. So we keep doing these things because they nourish us and they nurture us and they recharge us. The same way that you keep eating and you keep sleeping because it nourishes and nurtures and recharges your physical and your energetic body. Why do you keep breathing? When you breathe long enough, aren't you bored? <laughs> Beautiful. Sadhviji, thank you so much for everything that you are doing and, uh, uh, and dedicating your life uh, in making other people experience the bliss that you have experienced in your life and also for penning your journey in this book, Hollywood to the Himalayas. Um, I'll link this up on the description of the podcast for, uh, oh, for the listeners uh, or the viewers to check this book out, to definitely check this out. And I can't recommend enough for uh, people to come to the ashram once and experience this energy, um, you know, experience this, uh, you know, divine uh, energy that, that's present here. And uh, the presence of you and Swamiji and everybody here is just, just profound. Um, um, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been such a, such a blessing and honor to have this conversation with you here today. Well, I'm so happy that you came and I hope that you keep coming. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you.